We are delighted to be joined by author Ryan Peterson to talk about his brilliant book, The Judgment of a Nephilim. Welcome to Exposit the Word, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Really excited. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Before we talk about his great book, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Christian. Absolutely. So uh, I, I'm originally from New York, New York City. I was born in New York City in the Bronx, New York. And, you know, I was really uh, kind of went on the path of... You know, what you might call just a traditional easy believer. I was raised in a Christian home. I uh, went to church from 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 as long as I can remember, <laughs> yeah. and really was raised just to uh, study the Bible, to love God. I read a lot of books when I was young. I had a very big thirst for reading, and it was very apparent to me at a young age that the Bible had to have been supernaturally. Uh, inspired. Yeah. And so really, uh, I grew up with the word and grew up believing and trusting in the word. And obviously, as I got older, more into my career as an adult, uh, that's when God really took me in a direction to start really seeking him deeper and researching and writing and sharing some of his word with the world. Yeah, so cool. So when you was young, all of those books that you were reading, how many of those were about the Nephilim? <laughs> <laughs> zero. <laughs> you know, zero. I really did not even come across the topic of the Nephilim until uh, until about 13 or 14 years ago. It was the first time I even came across it at all. Just uh, by God's grace, I received the DVD from a ministry that discussed it and it kind of blew me away. It really, yeah. I watched it and it was one of those moments where I said, okay, I have to go back to my Bible and really start examining things. And I felt like once I understood what I call the supernatural interpretation of Genesis 6, it just opened up an, an entirely new context to the Bible for me. So that's what kind of set me on the path that led me to writing the book. So what was that DVD called? It was called The Nephilim Among Us. Uh, it was uh, a man named Mac Dominic, who was, a, mm. who was a major contributor at a Christian ministry called Cutting Edge. He, it, was he, it was him. It was, the, it was the most simple of DVDs. He's just literally sitting in front of a whiteboard with a marker, mm. writing out, sketching out Genesis 6 and writing Sons of God, Daughters of Men. And it was a very, buddy, it was very simple DVD, yeah. but it had a very long-lasting, profound effect and impact on me. Wow. And for the younger listeners, what's a DVD, Ryan? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry I, I'm dating myself saying DVD. So once upon a time, we used to watch uh, documentaries and movies on actual physical devices that you had to put into a machine, a disc you'd put into a machine and watch it. This yeah. is back going back to the 17th or 18th centuries, of course. That sounds almost as strange as the Nephilim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you were to mention the Nephilim to most people, they'll, they'll probably recall Goliath and then probably dismiss the whole Nephilim versus as some sort of weird fleeting footnote in the bible why do you think that is yeah so that's a great question and, and very true it's a very true observation i think really the main reason for that and i try to bring it on the book is that we the concept of the nephilim understanding this this supernatural interpretation has been a part of the church from the first century from the from the disciples to the apostles to the first century and second century church fathers but what happened was when we get to the turn of the 20th century it just uh, a lot of seminaries started moving away from teaching these more you know, scriptures that deal with the angelic realm, that deal with spiritual warfare. There was a move away from that. Mm. And I think a lot of it was to try and combat 
the uh, so-called enlightenment movement that was pushing evolution and and trying to discredit the Bible. So there was a hesitancy. And so you have generations of pastors who've never learned this. So they're not preaching it. They're not teaching it. So as a result, by now, fast forward to 2020, many people are not familiar. And one of the, the most, I get a lot of, uh, you know, comments on social media, emails, people reach out to me at conferences and by far the number one question I receive is why was I never taught this in church? And so yeah. that's really kind of how we ended up where this is not a part of common teaching in the church today. Yeah, it's so true. I, I was talking to one of my best friends uh, earlier on today, um, telling them about your book and telling them about this interview. And, and they replied, well, that, that can't be a very long book. You know, there's hardly anything in the Bible about the Nephilim, but it's amazing because I just feel like this book is is like a key that almost unlocks something because once you're then aware of this, this hermeneutic, you can't unsee it, right? Exactly. And that's what I really, my motivation with the book, there were many motivations, but one of the main ones was, was it was really twofold. One, mm. I really wanted to make a book that makes this case just based on the Bible alone. Because, yeah. you you know, it's great to have other books that are historical books, apocryphal books, but you can make this case just from Scripture. And I wanted to do that because I wanted this to be a book that you can bring into any church, any Sunday school class, any small group study, and it's all biblical. And then to show that this battle of these two bloodlines, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the Nephilim, the, 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 the messianic bloodline, this battle weaves all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And yeah. so many critical events in scripture yeah. are a result of this battle, a result of what happened in Genesis 6. And so I wanted to really write a book that brings all this to life. Because like I said before, it, it will have the same effect it had on me, that you start seeing a lot of the bigger context to what is happening in the events of the Old Testament. Testament. Yeah, you, you've done a great job doing that. I mean, it's packed full of supporting Bible verses, a real expository study using the Word of God to you know prove your points, and and that gives it credibility as well. I mean, you've mentioned you know extra biblical books that you've used as well. Just tell us a little bit before we move on, just because I, I want the listeners to understand how credible this is based on Scripture, because there there are risks when we start looking at um, books from the Apocrypha, right? I mean, you've you referenced Enoch. A little bit in a book and you also give a critique on why we need to be careful with that as well right exactly and so and i think that's you know uh i think that the there's i actually give credit so to speak to the apocryphal books like the book of enoch and the book of jasher because the the recent uh, modern translations of those books have inspired a lot of people to research the nephilim yeah and and, and really dig into these topics but what i want to do because I have a chapter devoted to these extra biblical texts, was put them in their proper place in relation to the Bible. Yeah. That these are historical books that reflect the thinking of the time. They uh, take on a lot of the biblical passages and have their own details they add to them, but they're not scripture. They're not divinely inspired scripture. And in many cases, uh, these books contradict the Bible. The easiest example to me is that yeah. in the book of Enoch, yeah. uh, it states that angels built the ark. Uh, whereas clearly in Scripture, when we go to Genesis chapter 6, God clearly tells Noah to build the ark. And not only does it, did God tell him, he gave Noah the direction, the dimensions, the specific instructions on how to build it. And then it says Noah obeyed God in all things that he was commanded to do. And Noah building the ark in the book of Hebrews is a part of the testimony of Noah and his, and his faithfulness. So that's a big contradiction. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful not to put these books on par with the divine 
divinely inspired Word of God, the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't uncommon for the authors of the New Testament books to actually reference documents that were in the culture at the time. Right? We had Paul... Um, he he referenced uh, you know poetry that was outside of a Bible and and um, I think it's Jude as well that we actually have a reference about the Book of Enoch in, in Jude is that right? It, exactly. So yeah. So uh, Jude quotes uh, Enoch. You know yeah. that that is the oldest uh, you know of the prophets. You know I call Enoch the first prophet. He was the first prophet recorded in Scripture, and his prophecy is recorded in the Book of Jude. And and you know and, and that's fine. You know and I think that's that's great that these the biblical authors under divine inspiration they did quote. Um, books that were not scripture and i think what that shows is that there can be truths that are divine truths in other books and that just but that's not a wholesale endorsement of all the poetry uh you know that paul uh quoted or of the entire book of enoch even though they may have solitary truths that are in fact 100 percent in line with scripture yeah one of the things i love about your book is how you you paint this backdrop and you create the context of the nephilim which this whole story starts before we even hear anything of them. Tell us about Satan's role and how he set his plan, because this is a really important backdrop. Absolutely. So what I wanted to do, because it's so important, I really wanted to go back to Genesis and really take our time, because there's so many details packed in the early chapters of Genesis, and see things, right? You know, we're told in Ephesians 6 that our true enemies are the principalities, the powers, their spiritual wickedness in high places. That what the, That is who the Bible tells us, mm. is who our focus should be when it comes to the warfare that we wage as Christians. Those are our enemies. And so when you think about these early chapters of the Bible, from that heavenly, angelic perspective, then you see things a little differently and so the easiest examples in genesis chapter 3 in and specifically genesis three fifteen, of course this is what i call the ultimate prophecy this is when god told satan that he would be conquered that his head would be bruised or crushed by the seed of the woman which of course is the messiah the lord jesus christ but the importance at that time was that god told the devil how he the means of his defeat it was not going to be god striking him down with lightning was not going to be the angels coming and flying to earth and conquering him it was going to be a human child yeah a boy born one day of a human woman who would have the power to defeat him so from that point on satan's focus was on humanity now this new creation humanity he had to either destroy humanity, prevent the birth of this Messiah, or corrupt humanity altogether to stop this child from ever being born and ever defeating him. And this set the course of human history for the next 6,000 years. You just go right to the next chapter in Genesis 4, and I talk about Cain. Of course, Cain and Abel, the first two sons born to Adam and Eve, and I identify that Cain could have been the Messiah. If you're thinking about this from the perspective of Satan and the fallen angels, Cain was the first seed born of the woman, born to Eve. He could have been the Messiah for all the devil knew. And what happens? He gets, Cain is so corrupted by sin, by the devil, by sinful temptation, that not only does he rebel against God, he kills his brother Abel. So right there, who could have also have been a potential Messiah. Mm-hmm. And this is how uh, the devil operates. So it's almost like taking out two birds with one stone. And then what we see is after Abel is killed, 
God now responds to the devil's move. He banishes Cain from Eden altogether. Cain goes to the land of Nod, separated from now Seth, who resumed the godly bloodline that would lead to the Messiah. And now the godly lineage was allowed to grow in, in population apart from Cain's lineage in safety. And God does this all throughout scripture, separating his believers from the unbelieving world, just like he did with the Israelites in Goshen, in the, in the, in the Egyptian empire during the Exodus. He allowed them to thrive and grow and multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And that's what sets the stage for Genesis 6. Because even when you get to Genesis 6, it was that it says that when men began to multiply upon the earth and daughters were born unto them, this is what starts the sons of God, the Asian and these illicit relations because the devil could no longer just rely on corrupting one son at a time or taking out one child at a time because the human population was growing. And so it took a widespread attack on the human race, which leads us to Genesis 6. And I call this the, the, you know, it was like Satan's nuclear weapon against humanity by instigating this rebellion where angels took human women as wives to corrupt humanity. With regard specifically to Satan, at the point when he heard the judgment of God and, and he knew that he would ultimately be destroyed through the seed of Eve, Satan is an all-knowing, right? So that's the first time that he hears that. And then what we see is his reaction, his response to that information, right? Exactly. Yeah, of course. The devil is not all-knowing. This, yeah. this was news to him. This yeah. is the first time the prophecy was put, was pronounced by God. Yeah. And that's what set him into action to now try and attack the birth and prevent the birth of this messiah one of the things you, you you speak about in your book is the fact that we didn't see any surprise from eve when satan spoke to her so what was life like in eden what what sort of things was happening from a supernatural point of view yeah absolutely so i think one one of the important things to recognize is that even all the way up to the days of noah we really the world before the flood was one where heavenly realm beings angelic beings were openly manifesting and interacting with humanity. Mm. You know, as you pointed out, as I pointed out in the book, that Eve was not scared of the of the devil when she met him. She didn't cower like you see after the flood, time and time again. Even when a righteous angel shows up, you know, Daniel couldn't even he kept passing out when he, when he encountered an angel uh, at one point. That yeah. people are frightened of them, and they have to say, you know, fear not, be not afraid. Whereas Eve wasn't frightened. You know, they spoke to God. They got to speak to God in person. They spoke to the devil in person. After Adam and Eve sinned, there were cherubim who were placed at the entrance to the garden so they couldn't enter anymore. There was a flaming sword, a divine realm flaming sword that guarded the way into the Garden of Eden. So you had this open interaction between Adam, Eve, God, and, and, and the angels. And so I think that is uh, one that was the reality. And then I think it's also interesting that when Jesus Christ says that, you know, speaking of the end times, mm -hmm. that will be as the days of Noah, it's going to happen again as well. We will have this open manifestation as we see described in Revelation chapter 9 when the abyss is opened and those beings are released to Revelation chapter 12 when the devil himself and his fallen angels are cast to the earth again. So, it, it, you know, the Bible is bookended by these by these errors of the open interaction between the heavenly and the earthly realm. You touched on it a, a little bit earlier on that, you know, Satan's plan B was to corrupt the human DNA, the bloodline. Just unpack that for us. How did he do that? How did he engage the angels to, to, to be complicit in that? Um, and what happened next? 
Right. So, so, you know, again, and this, this is the principal passage of this, of the entire book, Genesis six, four, where it says that the sons of God, it was really through sexual desire, you know, and, and a common, uh, you know, objection to this theory is that people say to me, they say, Hey, you know, Ryan, uh, this can't be true because Jesus said that angels can't marry and they can't have sexual relations. Mm. And so, well, that's really only partially right. You know, when Jesus said this in uh, the book of Matthew, he said that the angels in heaven do not marry. And that's all Jesus said. Jesus said nothing about procreation and said nothing about rebel angels. Mm. And so what you see in Genesis 6 is you have a faction of the fallen angels who are called the sons of God or Benaiha Elohim in Hebrew, who out of lust, it says they saw the daughters of men that they were fair. It was, it was this, it was illicit, it was sexual attraction. And they took human women as wives. And this was obviously a major uh, violation, a violation of God's order of God's law. But that is what opened the door uh, for this rebellion to take place and for this corruption to be introduced into humanity. And what was humanity's response to that? Because you've also mentioned in the book about there were suddenly technological advances during this period as well. How, how do those two things marry up? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's an interesting, it's very, again, you know, when you think about the small details in scripture, mm. when you get, when you look at the lineage of Cain, I identify, I call, you know, his lineage, the first family of the Nephilim. And in particular, the seventh generation uh, from Adam through the line of Cain, through the rebellious line. It's interesting. So you have something in scripture that I call special references that you'll have in the lineages that are given in scripture. You may have Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob and so on and so forth. But there are yeah. certain individuals in scripture who when you get to their generation their name the bible will give three verses four six verses to talk about this individual especially infamous ones and what i submit is that this is when the bible is telling us as readers as students of the word pay attention there's something significant historically about this person and the first individual you see this with in genesis chapter four is lamech and this is lamech who is this? Who is a, a, a in the lineage of Cain, not Lamech, who is Noah's father, who's yeah. who's detailed in chapters five and six. This yeah. is Lamech, who is descendant of Cain in Genesis chapter four, and it's an amazing thing when you get to his generation because it doesn't just talk about one son he had and moving on to lineage. It talks about all three of his sons, and what I what I show is that at the time, first of all, Lamech himself was. A, extreme rebel against God. He was the first person on scripture to violate the marital covenant of one man, one woman yeah. yoked together eternally. He was a, he was a polygamist. Yeah. He took two wives, yeah. Ada and Zillah. He also boasted of killing a man. He boasted of killing a man and then mocked God by saying, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, which was the promise that God made to Cain in mercy, when he gave Cain mercy that so no one would kill him for killing his brother, he said, Lamech shall be avenged 70 and sevenfold. So he was an extreme rebel, sinful rebel against God and a polygamist. And when you look at his family, you see this technological explosion. He has three sons. So you have Jabal. They said he was the father of such as dwell in tents and such as have cattle. So animal husbandry, tent making, Jubal. 
he was the father of instruments. He was the creator of music, musical yeah. instruments. The Jubilee is based off his name. We talk about the Jubilee, the trumpets blowing, the celebration in the, on the, in, in, in the Old Testament. And then Tubal Cain, who was named after Cain, and he, they said he was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And so he was the father of metallurgy, forging tools, forging weapons, all these things that give man advances based on our own strength. And I, and, and so the, and then, and then on top of that, so you have three sons being described, you have this technological explosion, and then this is other detail. You see a reference to the sister of Tubalcain. It says the sister of Tubalcain was Nema. And she's the first sister mentioned in any lineage as when you're going through Genesis. And what you see, this remember that this is the seventh generation. So this is the same generation as Enoch, who was the righteous prophet from Adam. This is when this re- rebellion was at its peak. And what I, what I show is that Nama, the significance in introducing Nama is that she was the first bride of the sons of God and the first mother of a Nephilim. And if you think about this, in all of the 1,000, if you talk about special references, there's in the 1,656 year history in the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 through the flood, there are only four women mentioned by name. Yeah. Eve and the three women in this passage in Genesis 4, the two wives of Lamech and Nama. So clearly there's something extremely significant about this family. And what I like to show is in the book is that when you go to historical Christianity, when you go out of the 20th century and go back in time to when there were Christians and theologians, pastors, lay people regularly understood the supernatural aspects of scripture, you see that they understood this to be the case. There's yeah. one... Um, a uh, passage I quote from a professor named Robert Jenkins. This is writing in 1721. And he says, in regards to this very notion, he said that Moses seems to refer to some things that happened near the beginning of the world as well known as in his time, as in Genesis 4, 22, where he says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. For no probable account can be given why Nama should be mentioned, but because her name was then well known among the Israelites for some reason which it does not concern us to be acquainted with, but which served to confirm to them the rest of the relation. Some have delivered that Nama by her beauty, because the name Nama means beauty, mm-hmm. enticed the sons of God. Yeah. And uh, and there's other sources too, I say, that say that she was the one who started this to make the sons of God go after strange flesh. And, with, and the exchange essentially was divine knowledge in exchange for a human wife. Yeah. We saw the sin in the world um, before the Nephilim. We saw it with Cain. We, we already knew, know there's a wickedness and, and, you know, this falling short of what God required from his people how much and how quickly did things escalate and how how bad did things get on the earth before the flood i think it escalated extremely quickly i mean if you think about that you know enoch of course you know he's just a few generations removed from 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 noah Mm. and by the time we get to noah's life it got so bad and just a few centuries that God said he repented even making humanity. Mm-hmm. And you look at the testimony of Genesis 6, God says over and over again that all flesh had corrupted itself. So the Nephilim, their DNA, their dominance physically, militaristically, and genetically took over the earth. 
It was pushing humanity to the point of pure extinction. And I think the testimony of that is that when Noah is described, it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And that term perfect in his generations yeah. is that term is tamim yeah. in Hebrew, which refers to a physical perfection. It's the same word used to describe a lamb, a sacrificial lamb without blemish, tamim. And so it's saying that Noah was just, he believed in God, therefore he was justified for his salvation, but he was perfect in his generations in that he was purely human. And I think what the Bible is telling us is that he was the last purely human believer left on earth. So just just how diluted was it then in terms of because I know you're I don't want to spoil the what's coming next because I know <laughs> but how how just how prevalent was was this corruption within within the DNA with you know within the world at this point how widespread was it? Yeah, I, I think that uh, probably ninety you know close to one hundred percent ninety eight percent of the population uh, they were either either part Nephilim all Nephilim. Or had enough of a trace that they were uh, were carrying that DNA, and what we see along with that is an acceleration of spiritual wickedness, yeah. right? You know, and if you think about this, the idea that you know we as human beings we are born sinners because we inherited a sin nature from Adam, yeah. right? That, that's a testimony of Scripture, and Adam all died. That we have all by one man sin entered the world, yeah. and. So I talk about this idea that we are the spiritual inheritance, the sin nature. So imagine the sin nature of a fallen angel is that much more accelerated and powerful in its wickedness, in its iniquity. And that's why you see such an acceleration. The world is full of violence. God is at the point of saying, I don't I can't I, I regret even making humanity. It should have never even happened like this. So they pushed the human race to the brink of extinction. And the, the importance of understanding that, aside from just knowing what the Bible says, is that it's showing that time and time again, the flood judgment was not God just being angry and saying, I'm just going to wipe out humanity because everyone's being naughty and sinning a lot. It was God pulling the remnant of pure humanity out of destruction. It was salvation on the ark. It was not uh, just a punishment from an angry God. It was God pulling us out of our own sin, out of our own wickedness, and saving us so we could have salvation through the seed of the woman, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so, so good. A lot of people stumble in understanding how the flood would have wiped out the Nephilim, but then after the flood, we obviously see the, the Nephilim continuing famously with Goliath. How's that possible? Yeah, sure. So uh, I believe that the the DNA of the of the Nephilim passed through on the ark and specifically the wives of Noah's sons and uh, the wife of, the, of his son Ham. And there's something very interesting in biblical details that kind of reveals this is that when you look again at the lineages uh, in scripture of the patriarchs as described in Genesis chapter 10 of the godly patriarchs, you know, most of them had their children by age 50, they begat their first son, or maybe age 60, 78. Obviously, lifespans were very different before the flood, so you yeah. had children at a later age. But there's something very interesting when you get to Noah. When you get to Noah, Noah did not have his first child until he was 500 years old. Mm. So why, why does that matter? Why is that significant? Because we know Noah got on the, he boarded the ark when he was 600 years old. That's when the flood started. 
God told Noah, God gave the, when God instructed Noah to make the ark, he gave the earth a 120 year probation to repent before the flood judgment. That's when Noah started building the ark until the flood came was 120 years, which means he was 480. So by the time Noah had sons, the earth was already corrupt. The testimony of scripture was that all flesh had corrupted itself. And then if you think about the, by the time his sons were old enough to marry and have children, have wives and have children, yeah. the odds of finding a woman who was purely human were slim to none. And then when you look at Ham, who was the wicked son of Noah, who was not a believer, who, who wouldn't, who wouldn't care about the fate of the, of the, you know, about the prophecy of the Messiah, about the Nephilim. He's not, he doesn't care for the things of God. He would have no qualms taking a wife who still has the Nephilim DNA. And I think further proof of this is that when you look, and I show this all throughout the book, when you trace back the giants after the flood, the post-Diluvian giants, you see no reference to them being born of angels. They're, they said that they were born of the giants. And they can all be traced back to Canaan, who was the son of Ham. Mm. And the language used as well, just to be clear, isn't only Nephilim as well. There are, there are other words as well used to describe giants as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Called yeah. the uh, Anakim, uh, Rephaim. I think Rephaim actually was what the the ethnicity, quote-unquote, of all the giants were before the flood. After the flood, they were called Rephaim, Emim, Zamzumims, uh and I, uh, and I think the reason for why, you know, when you get to Genesis 14, you see a lot of these different names, is that at the Tower of Babel dispersion, that's when you had the giants, some giants were put in different nations, because a lot of times, especially in Genesis chapter 14, it will describe a tribe, say the Zamzumims, and say they, they are called Zamzumims, but they are of the Rephaim. Mm. So they're all... Nephilim giants. They're all other Rephaim, but because of the Tower of Babel where God confused the languages, depending on where they lived geographically, they had a different tribal name because all the, all the people started speaking different languages. So there are many names for these Nephilim tribes in the Old Testament once you get after the flood and after the Tower of Babel. We know God is sovereign, so why did he allow the Nephilim bloodlines continue beyond the flood? Yeah, great question. So I think, again, you know, time and time again, and this is just a biblical principle. God allows humanity to sin. We have we 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 reach. We are allowed to make our choice to follow God or sin in rebellion. I believe Ham was leading that, and we have. But we have to live with the impact and consequences of our sin, just yeah. as God still allows the devil to roam to and fro on the earth. Yeah. But also, there's another powerful spiritual purpose: is that when you get to the post-diluvian world. Uh, time and time again, the Nephilim are there to serve as a testimony to God's power. Easiest example is David and Goliath. You have mm -hmm. this mighty Nephilim giant who's nine feet tall and a little boy mm -hmm. who proclaims faith in God is able to conquer him. And what happened? The Philistines flee after he cuts off the head of Goliath. So they were there also to show that, yes, you have this mighty force that looks so powerful and so imposing and so scary, but God is on the throne and God is powerful over them all. You've written that at the time of the flood, not only were the people destroyed, but at the same time, these fallen sons of God were put in chains. Tell us about that, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the we're told, and this is this is the the beauty of Scripture is that you know we can 
we can see confirmation of what, everything we're talking about in the New Testament. Yeah. In Jude verses 6 and 7, we're told explicitly that the angels who left their first estate uh, as, Sodom and, as Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh, that they were cast into the abyss. They were cast into the abyss under chains of darkness until the great day of judgment, which I believe is the great tribulation. Second Peter chapter 2 as well testifies that these angels, not all of the fallen angels, just the ones who committed fornication by marrying human women and giving birth to the Nephilim, that they at present are in the abyss, the bottomless pit, that compartment of hell, a prison in hell, and they are locked there in chains, and they've been there for millennia. And so it's really, uh, it's also another thing I say often when people question, say, well, how could this possibly be true? How did this happen? I say, well, you have to think, why, if the devil is not locked in the abyss right now, yeah. and is still able to go to and fro on the earth. Clearly, these angels did something particularly heinous to to get immediate judgment. And I find that in time and time again, when it comes to this particular sin of angels trying to have relations with human women, God responds swiftly and immediately. And I, I spend a whole chapter in the book, the actual titular chapter, this chapter called Judgment of the Nephilim in the book, going into what I think are some of the most um, probably uh, amazing but least discussed passages on this topic, and that's Ezekiel chapters 31 and 32. And I think Ezekiel 31 in particular goes into great detail about this being, this angelic being who the Bible calls the Assyrian, mm. who was the preeminent fallen angel in the pre-flood world. And what I do is I, I say, you know, to me, Ezekiel 31 is what I call an esoteric passage. It's right in line with Isaiah chapter 14, of course, that passage uh, that talks about the king of Babylon, but we, we know commonly that it's really uh, spiritually referring to the devil. It's the devil outlining his plan to overthrow God. It says, how thou fallen from, from, from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. He says, the devil says, I will, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregations in the side to the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yeah. And we know uh, commonly the common interpretation that this is not the king of Babylon who is being really described here. It's, it's Satan mm -hmm. or the Antichrist who he's spiritually one with. Mm -hmm. And similarly, we see a similar passage in Ezekiel 28 where it says, referring to the king of Tyrus, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, and goes into this whole description of the devil before he fell, serving God, it says, until iniquity was found in me. So I call these esoteric passages. And Ezekiel 31 is a similar passage, but rather than referring to the devil, it's referring to this angel, the Assyrian, who was ruling the pre-flood world. And, and not only that, not only does it talk about his rise, it says, it describes him as this tree with these branches and says all the nations were gathered under his shadow, that he ruled over all the nations, it says that he was fair by the roots, by, by the, his root was by great waters, that he, mm. but then just like Ezekiel 28 in Ezekiel 31, it says that the cedars in the garden of God could not hide him, this angelic being. The fir trees were not like his boughs, and his chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. That's Ezekiel 31 and 8. And that's the critical verse because it tells you that, wait a second, 
we're talking about a being who ruled the earth who was in the Garden of Eden. And Ezekiel 31 actually makes more references to the Garden of Eden than any chapter in the Bible. And it describes the rise and fall of this being that God destroyed. And when you get to the end of Ezekiel 31, it actually specifically references the flood. It says that God sent the flood to destroy this being after it says the terrible of nations have cut him off and it says that he that there's this big battle where all the nations turned against the assyrian and his branches were broken his all his kingdom fell apart which again corresponds with genesis that says the earth was filled with violence at this time at the in the days of noah right before the flood and it even outlines and says that this was done as a deterrent. This destruction of the flood was done to deter angels from ever doing this sin again. Yeah. And it says also, this is in the day he went down to the grave, to to to, to, to the Tehom in, in Hebrew, to the abyss. It says, I restrain the floods thereof and the great waters were stayed. So God is specifically referencing that this being, this angelic being was destroyed by the flood and sent to the abyss and this is and he went down there alive which is how the angels are they are alive the nephilim were killed but the fallen angels as described in jude and second peter chapter 2 they are alive in chains of darkness in the abyss at present and the amazing uh connection we can find to this is that that day you know it says that god says in the day he went down to the abyss god restrained the floodwaters well when you look at the chronology of the flood in the book of Genesis, the floodwaters raged on for 150 days. Mm-hmm. And it says after 150 days, God restrained the floods and they were they abated. The waters returned back down to the fountains of the deep and the rain stopped. And the amazing thing is that when you get to Revelation chapter 9 and specifically the fifth trumpet, we see that the bottomless pit where these fallen angels are imprisoned is opened. An angel, who I believe is the devil, is given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opens the abyss for the first time in millennia, and these beings are released, and now the Bible describes them as locusts, having men's face, women's hair, teeth of lions, these grotesque hybrid beings, and it says they torment the unsaved world for five months, which of course in the Hebrew calendar is 150 days. So just as these angels, when God judged them in the days of Noah, were punished by the floodwaters and tormented for 150 days, then dragged down to the abyss. When the abyss is opened, they now come out and torment the unsaved world for 150 days as well. Yeah, so good. Ryan, one of the things that I love about your book is there are many passages in the Bible that, you know, many people skim over and, and, you know, categorize it in their mind as oh that's a bit strange don't really understand that and continue reading you seem to be have been wired in a way that you were almost attracted to these verses and you seek them out (laughs) 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 another one of those being um the story of noah after the flood um you know you know there's I've, i've heard lots of people sort of give reason as to what they think happened with regards to his nakedness involving ham um and then what happens with his son canaan break break down and unpack what you see happening there Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, a well-known account, it's a very mysterious passage that you have this this passage where Noah uh, gets drunk, essentially, and is asleep in his tent and is naked. And it says that 
Ham went into the tent and saw Noah's nakedness. And there's a lot of debate as to what that means. And some people say, well, it means that he actually uh, committed adultery with his mother and fornicated with her or things of that nature. But I really like to just take the direct excuse me, interpretation, and I just see it as that he saw his nakedness and basically uh, proclaimed it out to his brothers to, to shame his father. And But what I find also very interesting, extremely interesting, is that regardless of what happened, we know when Noah finds out, everyone agrees he found out, and he was obviously upset about it, but rather than punish Ham, who committed this sin, he curses Canaan. He curses Canaan, the son of Ham, who for all had, who had nothing to do from the biblical account had absolutely nothing to do with this event at all. He wasn't. It's not like it doesn't even appear that Canaan was there at the time. But he curses Canaan. I think the reason for that is that Canaan was already showing signs that he had the Nephilim DNA, mm-hmm. and Noah knew this and put this curse on him. And I think that. When we talk about, again, this, the mysteries of the Bible, Canaan is one of the most mysterious figures because he, his name is mentioned well over 200 times in the Bible, mm. and yet there's not one verse that quotes him or tells us anything he ever did. You know, the promised land itself is called the land of Canaan all throughout Scripture. Yeah. It's named after him, yet we see nothing about him. And when you look at the, this from the perspective of the Nephilim, and realize that, wait a second, he was the forefather of all these giants after the flood. And when the Israelites are coming back to the promised land, the land of Canaan, we see giants everywhere. It's clear that this honor, this quote-unquote honor he received is because he was the the post-flood progenitor of the giants. Yeah. And it seems, just like we see so often in the Bible, get this uh, moment of... Uh, of peace and then things uh, begin to unwind and lessons haven't been learned and, and things significantly start to unwind again and we, we see Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Tell us about how that begins to move the story forward and again how that ties into you know your your study of a Nephilim. Sure. So, you, so yeah, so, so, so Nimrod, a, a very interesting uh, figure, infamous figure. He's another one who when you get to the lineages uh, in Genesis chapter 11, he gets a number of verses to describe him, and mm. of course, Nimrod uh, was the—he was the leader of the Tower of Babel rebellion. And I think it's really kind of one of the more uh, underrated acts of rebellion in the Bible. That it wasn't just about building a tower in a city. You know, if you look at what he was doing, everything he was doing was in in, in contradiction to God's commands. Yeah. God wanted the, the humanity to fill the earth to spread out multiply mm. nimrod at the tower of babel wanted to unite the world all together in one city and have everyone be together united and then his aspiration was to have a tower that would reach unto heaven mm. and i believe that this was a spiritual sense not that it was going to be so high it reached into outer space but that it was going to be a, open up a spiritual channel or portal to access heaven. And I think that was the real goal. So it was a, a, a gross rebellion against God. And the interesting thing about Nimrod is that when you look in the Septuagint, one of my favorite sources, because it's the oldest uh, extant version of the Old Testament that we have today, 
and of course translated from the from from Greek back in the second century BC. It states about Nimrod. It says three times in one verse. It says that Nimrod was a giant. So he became a giant and was a giant hunter before the Lord, and that before the Lord meaning in opposition to the Lord. So it's interesting that it says he became a giant. So I, I open the possibility of did he go through some transformation uh, into being like a Nephilim, and I think the the biblical support of that is that it wouldn't be the only time that someone was transformed. And I reference Daniel uh, chapter four, where we see King Nebuchadnezzar was transformed from a man and given a beast's heart at the decree of the watchers, watcher angels, the same angels that are actually mentioned in the book of Enoch, the watchers, they transform him so that he is a hybrid being. He's part man, part beast. He grows hair like an animal. He grows claws. He lives outside like an animal for seven years. And so, uh, so we know that, and that, you know, the Bible is giving that as a literal account that this happened to him. And so, so I open up the door of the possibility that did, did he take on that type of transformation to becoming a giant and even, and, and certainly in his actions, it definitely was a harken back to this rebellion. And even what he did with the tower of Babel was they, you know, they, when they were baking the bricks to build the tower, they put bitumen, Mm -hmm. the same material that Noah used on the ark to make it waterproof. They put it on the tower. So again, it was saying, you know, I I believe again was a, a sign of, rebellion against God, that if God tries to flood the earth again, even though God promised he never would, but a non-believer doesn't believe God, we will be prepared for, for, for the next flood. And uh, I reference it in, in Judgment of the Nephilim, you know, this, uh, again, going back to the book of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar, who's a very interesting figure, uh, you know, he's, I, I, I consider him a, a total foreshadow spiritually of the Antichrist and the things he did in his career before humbling himself to God in Daniel chapter four, he was yeah. a total foreshadow of the Antichrist. You know, he erects a statue and demands worship upon punishment of death. Uh, he's transformed to a beast for seven years. But also in Daniel chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the statue with the head of gold, torso of silver, midsection of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and miry clay, in Daniel two forty three, there's this uh, when Daniel's interpreting the meaning of this dream and the meaning of the statue, there's this mysterious prophecy where it says that when you see the, the toes mixed of iron and miry clay, it says they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Yeah. Uh, and this of course is a end times reference. Daniel is mm. talking about the world right before the stone returns, the stone being Jesus Christ that, it, that, that turns into a, a mighty mountain, a kingdom for the eternal kingdom of Christ. And so what I think will happen and of course, Christ the Lord prophesied this and saying that it will be as the days of Noah, that just as we had angels on the earth, it's going to happen again in the end times. And I referenced it earlier. You see it in Revelation chapter 12. What happens? The devil is, is cast out, finally evicted from heaven. Yeah. Michael and his angels cast him out for good. And it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come upon you having great wrath, knowing his time is short. And then at the same time, you have the, the abyss being opened. And really, what is it? It's a recreation, I believe. It's the end times flood. God is not going to flood the world with water again, but you have the angels coming from heaven and from within the earth just as the water of the flood came from heaven the windows of heaven and from the fountains of the deep and so again we're going to see that again so i think we're going to certainly 
see these angels again openly manifesting on earth and attempting this once again i think the culmination of that of course will be the antichrist and that's really uh i i hint to this in the book but that's what my current research is 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 exploring the other seed that genesis 3:15 talks about two seeds god said there'll be enmity between thy seed and yeah. the seed of the woman we yeah. know the seed of the woman is the lord jesus christ a literal being not a metaphor not an allegory but of the literal being jesus christ you know the son of god the messiah so who is the seed of satan well i think the ultimate culmination of that while we see the seeds of angels of fallen angels the ultimate culmination of that will be the antichrist i am so excited so just just let me let me just not fall off my chair for a second you're you're actually you're you're writing a book at the moment to cover this, right? Absolutely. This ah. will be the sequel to Judgment of the Nephilim. I'm hoping to have it published by late September, early October, and uh, <laughs> it's going to be all about the return of the fallen angels in the end times and the Antichrist. Where do I place my pre-order, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's oh, so really good. Actually great. I'm actually, I'm, I'm really, uh, it's all on schedule. It's been a great blessed process. Yeah. Uh, God has really brought a, a lot of revelations in my research. And so I'm really excited to get it, to really wrap it up this summer and have it ready to go by September. Oh, that's so, so good. It's coming very soon. We'll definitely, <laughs> we'll definitely have to have you back on here again to talk about that one when it comes out. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll be glad to come back. Ah, thank you, Ryan. So, how significant is this promise given to Abraham? Because he was promised the land of Canaan, like you touched on a minute ago. This land is now beginning to be filled with Nephilim. (laughs) How significant is that? It's it's so significant because it's really again when you start seeing things from this perspective of the prophecy that god put out there of the messiah being born that and that satan trying to battle back and forth yeah. almost going round for round with god at certain points god the lord really narrows down where this messianic bloodline is going and the big, biggest example of that is abraham where yeah. god tells abraham this this nation this seed will come through you mm-hmm. and so abraham was really a man on the spot that the world was with was hanging in the balance within him and his family and so once you see his family of course who eventually be the nation of israel uh coming out of the exodus what happens is that you see the devil places all the Nephilim after the flood. Almost all of them are in the promised land or at the border of the promised land. King Og, Sihon, who were Nephilim giants, who God said in Amos chapter 2 that they were as tall as the cedars. You know, a cedar of Lebanon could be anywhere from 40 feet to 100 feet. And mm-hmm. God compares these two kings to cedars of Lebanon that Satan strategically said, I am going to place my armies my fallen beings in this land to deny god to deny his prophecy to show to have the prophecy of god fail so everything involving abraham was extremely significant because literally the fate of salvation the prophesied salvation was hanging with him and his lineage and so much more makes sense like we said at the start of the interview you know it's like a a key to being able to understand things a lot more clearly the spies that go out and see the land they obviously come back and, and see these giants. Also, the commands given to Joshua about going into the land and, and wiping everybody out, right? Exactly. And so we can just give, you know, even even going to Abraham first, when you see the fact that Abraham, when he makes it to Canaan, 
a famine comes upon the land and he leaves and goes to Egypt, which God never told him to do. And when he gets there, he almost gives up his wife by lying and saying it's his sister. He almost loses his wife. And, you know, even that was a part of thwarting the plan of him having his seed. And then you get to Numbers chapter 13 and the 12 spies that were sent by Moses. You know, that's such a powerful passage because, you know, that passage is quoted in the book of Hebrews as a as a testimony to the doctrine of salvation by faith in God. And what's interesting is you have to understand from the biblical timeline when the 12 spies are sent to scout the promised land, this is probably 2 weeks after the Exodus that the Israelites have been traveling to the land of Canaan. Yeah. So they have just seen the greatest supernatural series of miracles performed by God up to that point. They saw all the 10 plagues brought upon the Egyptian empire, the final one killing all the firstborn. They had just walked over the Red Sea on dry land and watched God destroy Pharaoh and the most powerful empire on earth at that time Mm. supernaturally by bringing the Red Sea waters back on top of them and drowning them. They saw all these things just happen that God delivered them from all their enemies. And then just two weeks later, they see three men, the sons of Anak, Ahimon, Seshai, Talmai, but they were Nephilim giants. And they said, God can't deliver us. Ten of them said, we cannot enter this land. Yeah. We, they said, we, we are as grasshoppers in their sight. They were so frightened. And remember the punishment of this. When we talk about, you know, you learn in Sunday school about the 40 years in the wilderness. You know, that's a very commonly taught thing. It was all because of the Nephilim. And this is what Satan was doing. Satan was using them to bring doubt. And that shows you how imposing and how terrifying these beings were. Mm-hmm. That it just took three of them for a nation that just saw... God performs so many supernatural acts against their enemies to say God can't beat them. So tell us a little bit about the command in terms of if you, if you, you know, many people wince when they read the story, you know, the, 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 the book of Joshua about the destruction within that book. This, this again, this is another rescue mission, right? Just like the flood in the first place and, and how you described that. Tell us a little bit in detail about, about what Joshua's, you know, um, mission yeah, was. A- 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 absolutely. Uh, and, and it's very understandable that when people see these commands from God to Joshua, like go in and destroy everything, woman, man, child, yeah. leave no one behind, utterly destroy them. Yeah. So when you see this command to destroy woman, man, child, to utterly destroy all people, including children, it's very understandable that people are terrified by that. But it was, again, not just God being angry and irrational and saying, just just wipe out and commit genocide. It was God eliminating the last remnant of the Nephilim DNA from Earth. It was, it was really for the purpose of saying this is coming to an end and God is, re- again, rescuing humanity from, a, from having all chance of salvation being destroyed by the Nephilim DNA. And this is why – and what I also show is that it wasn't just go in there and destroy everybody. There were specific nations that God lists over and over again when he talks about the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Perizzite. And I show that these are all traced back to Canaan. Yeah. These are the Nephilim-infested nations that God sent the Israelites to utterly wipe out. And some nations, they don't. You know that they, you know, they get to the Ammonites, they, they go around their territory. So it was a very, this was a targeted camp, military campaign against the last of the post-Diluvian Nephilim remnant on Earth, and it was done why? 
out of God's love, out of rescuing humanity. And that's why God says, don't marry them. Don't give your daughters to them. God's trying to bring this genetic corruption to an end for good, to preserve humanity and save us and lead us to salvation through Christ. And how did the last few Nephilim get wiped out? Sure. Well, uh, the, the campaign, Joshua, of course, was, was very faithful. Um, so he listened to, to, to God, and yeah. the Israelites did wipe out many of these nations. And the amazing thing is, to show you again what, that this was really a supernatural battle taking place, when you look at the details of the, the, the wars waged for the Promised Land by Joshua, in almost all the battles, it says that the Lord went before the Israelites. Mm. You know, God is constantly going ahead and wiping out these Nephilim armies, and the Israelites are really just cleaning up the mess of retreating soldiers after God has come in and done the severe damage against them. So, and when it comes to the Nephilim, God personally intervenes to fight them. And I talk about that, that Jesus Christ is fighting against these beings. He's literally waging war against them. And so, again, which shows this is not just an ordinary battle. And then you do have some remnant. It says that they retreated to... Uh, to Ashdod, to Gaza, and Gath. And you find the final uh, Nephilim mentioned are in Gath, these giants. They said they were, they were born to the giant of Gath in 2 Samuel 21, they're described. And you have David, King David, and his mighty men. They fight the last one. And many of them have similar descriptions to, to Goliath. This mm-hmm. is the, they have a staff, a spear, who is like a weaver's beam. They have great stature. Some of them have six toes and six fingers. Mm-hmm. And then what I find interesting also is that you get to the final mention which is uh, of of a nephilim in the bible it's in it's this 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 uh man called the egyptian and says he was his, he was five cubits high and he was defeated by benaiah one of david's mighty men and the interesting thing about that is that in first chronicles so this is where you know you look in first chronicles 21 this is the next passage after the last giant is killed and it says there that Satan, it says, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Satan immediately steps into action. It's very rare you see Satan really doing anything directly against any person in the Old Testament. But as soon as the last giant has been killed, he jumps into action and provokes David to sin. And of course, uh, you know, a number of Israelites suffered uh, punishment because of David's sin against God. And so I think um, that's a sign that the devil knew this major weapon in his arsenal was gone and he had to go to another contingency plan to try and thwart uh, the birth of the Messiah. Yeah. Ryan, we've hardly scratched the surface with your book and uh, (laughs) I'm conscious, but I've had you for an hour and I certainly don't want to be blamed for delaying your next book that's coming out. (laughs) So excited about that. It, I I, uh, I enjoyed looking at the reviews on your Amazon uh, on your Amazon um, page, and one of the worst reviews it's just five star reviews <laughs> one after another, and one of the <laughs> the worst reviews I could find was somebody gave it two stars and said there's too much reference to scripture. So <laughs> in fact, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on writing such a such an amazing book. So good. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. I had a great time. Oh, thank you so much. Ryan, if anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, my website is judgmentofthenephilim.com, just one word. Uh, and so you can always contact me through there. Also, my Facebook is Judgment of the Nephilim, my YouTube channel, Instagram, it's all Judgment of the Nephilim. Feel free to reach out to me, email me through social media, or go onto my website. Uh, I love taking questions. I also have a YouTube channel that's Judgment of the Nephilim as well. Um, any way you want to contact me, I'm happy to answer questions, talk, and connect. That's awesome. What I'll do is I'll find all of those links and put them in the description below this video as well, so it's easier, easy for the listeners to, to find those. Ryan, thanks again, and look forward to speaking to you later on in the year. Excellent. Thank you. God bless.